Welcome to Gigami. Today's guest is Keith Harris. Keith began his career as a plugger, getting songs played on the radio for Transatlantic and then EMI Records, where he became general manager of Motown in the UK. That's where he met Stevie Wonder, who asked Keith to manage him, which he does to this day. Alongside his management career, Keith also lectured on the music industry as a senior fellow at the University of Westminster and has led many industry organisations and initiatives, including the Music Managers Forum. Keith's career has been marked by many fantastic achievements and it's all the more impressive because of the prejudice that he's suffered throughout his career. Born to West African parents in the north of England in the 1950s, he experienced racism on a regular and repeated basis, not least in his early days in the music industry. His response was, don't be bitter, be better, and as Billboard wrote, he became a tireless campaigner for equal opportunities. More than anything, Keith is one of the most respected and widely liked people in the industry, and he's got some fantastic advice which he shares in this interview. Keith was awarded the OBE in 2015, and in 2021 was elected Rector of the University of Dundee. Thank you for coming on. What I'd like to start with is just a little bit about about you and your career. How did you get into the industry, and how have you ended up doing the sort of things that you do now? Well, first of all, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but I'm, I'm always slightly hesitant when people talk about my career because it was never really intended to be a career. And, you know, a career feels like something different, something that you kind of have a plan and a goal. And, of course, it's been nothing like that. I, I came into this because I was a fan of music, you know, loved pop music from the age of five or six and wanted to be a part of it. Like most young people, you know, I'd have loved to be in a group, but realized in my teenage years I wasn't good enough, you know, and was lucky enough then to have a bunch of friends who were these musicians who were in a group and allowed me to manage them. And, uh, you know, that's kind of part of my entree. I mean, I should go back and, and say that the reason they allowed me to manage them was because I had been what's called the entertainment convener at the University of Dundee, which, which was you know, where I was a student. And in those days, the college circuit for bands was the most important music circuit. So we were getting very, very big acts. And as entertainment convener, you, know, you, you kind of got a little bit of experience of putting on shows with very big groups. You know? And so my friends who were in a band felt that that gave me enough background to be their manager. Yeah. They were wrong, of course, but that's, that's what they thought. When I realized that the group wasn't going to make it, I realized, and obviously I still really wanted to be in the music business. So I bought what was then, well, it still is really, the music industry trade paper called Music Week and looked through the job adver- adverts. And there was a, a job advertised for a Southern Regional Promotions Manager for Transatlantic Records. And I didn't know what it was, but it was an advert, it was an advert so I applied. You know, so I went along and it turned out to be a job doing radio promotions. You know, so the idea was, the commercial sta- radio stations were, were absolutely brand new, because this would have been 1975, I think I started at Transatlantic. And Capital Radio and LBC, which were the first two commercial stations, 
came on air in October 1973. Commercial radio in, in the UK was actually very new. And when I started doing the job of, of Southern Regional Promotions, I think there were only 12 commercial radio stations on air in the UK. And, so, and several BBC local stations. And my job was to go around all the radio stations in the Southern region and try to get the records that Transatlantic had in its catalogue played. I was, I was at Transatlantic for about two years. And then I went to EMI's licensed label division. I had a, a, a bit of a falling out with the, the general manager at Transatlantic Records. And so I decided to walk to the nearest record company and see if I could get a job. <laughs> and the nearest record company was EMI Records licensed label division. So I walked in and said, you know, I'm looking for, for a job. And they said, what do you do? And I said, I do radio promotions. I got shown up to see the general manager of licensed labels who coincidentally had worked at Transatlantic Records in the past. Yeah, so he kind of at least knew the label. And he said, so what do you do? And I said, I do radio promotions. And he said, oh, okay, what have you done lately? And I had a record that was showing quite well on the magazine called Needle Time, which sort of logged airplay at that time. He said, well, funnily enough, Motown are looking for a new promotions person. Would be interested in doing that. So I agreed to join Motown, but it wasn't as simple as that because I agreed to join the label. And at the EMI end, I'd been kind of accepted. And, and they said to me, just before you, you know, because I was going on holiday, I said, well, look, I've got two weeks' holidays. I'm going to hand in my notice, take my two weeks' holiday, and come back and start. And they said, okay, that's great it's probably best to look in and see the vice president of Motown International happens to be based in London, a guy called Ken East, um, before you go, just tell him that you're going to be the new promo guy. So I did that, I had a meeting with him and his, his general manager, was a guy called John McCready from, I think he was, was either Australia or New Zealand. And so I went and saw them, had a chat with them, everything was fine, I went off, came back for my two weeks on holiday to be told actually, we can't offer you the Motown job anymore. I was saying, why? I was told later by the general manager of the licensed label division who had offered me the other thing that um, said they didn't want any black people working for Motown. Sounds it sounds bonkers, but that's what was told to me, and I have no reason to disbelieve that. What happened was I said, well, look, you've given me a job offer. So, yeah, and I've handed in my notice. They said, well, you can come and work for EMI Licensed Label Division, but you can't work on Motown. We'll give you some other labels to work on. So they gave me uh, four other labels. There's Fantasy, Areola America, EMI International, uh, Blue Note, I think, to work you know, for them as licensed labels, but not Motown. And, you know, so I yeah, but not much I can say. I mean, it's their company. <laughs> yeah. As long as I had a job, I didn't really care. You know, obviously I was not, I mean, they didn't, they didn't tell me directly that's because I was black, although I knew. <laughs> you know, if they told me directly, then I'd probably be a whole lot more angry about it. But, you know, they, they just said, oh, I, you can't work for Motown. Well, I started working for those labels they'd given me and just do my job. The difference was that now I was doing national radio. I was doing Radio 1 
capital, which counted as a national station in those days, rather than doing regional radio. So I was basically London-based and doing London-based radio. And obviously started working those labels in the, in the best way that I could. And I can't have been there that long, only two or three months. And first of all, I got approached by Rocket Records, which was Alton John's label at the time. And they had a couple of things coming out. They had a, a record by an artist called Junior Campbell, who had been in a band called The Marmalade. And they asked me if I could help them working on that. And then Elton John's Blue Moves album was due to be released. And said, well, would you maybe help us work this as well? Now, I'm not sure why. I mean, you know, I got sort of access to Radio 1, which again <laughs> was crazy. So much stuff happens in my life, which is crazy. What had happened, I, I was able to get fairly quick entry to Radio 1 considering that was coming from the outside and what had facilitated that because this was 1976 right and that year they decided they were going to instigate this new what became a bit of a fixture in the calendar which was radio one versus the record pluggers 11 football no cricket and one of the people that kind of put this together was a lady called marilyn ford and she had been the Radio 1 person for Transatlantic Records when I was doing regional radio for Transatlantic Records. So in I was still at Transatlantic when that fixture was instigated. And Marilyn didn't play cricket. So she asked me, since she was one of the organisers, if I would kind of play in her place for Transatlantic in the team. So I did. But... The summer of 76, you, you may remember, was a really long, hot summer. Yes, yeah, scorching, yeah. But also, it happened to be a summer when the West Indies had been playing cricket. So, of course, they had this sort of array of fast bowlers. So I came to play in this Radio 1 versus Pluggers game. And because they didn't know me, because I was re regional radio. So, you know, all the Radio 1 DJs and, and the producers were coming in to bat. And were basically completely psyched out by the fact that they had this this quite tall, what they thought was West Indian, or I'm not West Indian, I'm from West Africa, but they did they actually assumed that I was West Indian. So they, you were a ringer, they thought. <laughs> exactly. So I I got five wickets for twelve runs, and and I scored seventy eight or something in this game. So that made obviously that made a bit of an uh, an impression when I then had to go and see these guys at Radio 1 because they, they basically remembered me. So, you know, so it kind, of, it kind of got me in the door, if you like, at Radio 1 as a new plugger, you know, one that, that basically all the Radio 1 producers knew, yeah, probably for the wrong reasons. They weren't too bruised or battered because they didn't hang around long enough. How, how did you then get back into Motown? Well, what happened was, as I told you, I was asked to do the Elton John Blue Moose record, uh, which I'd agreed to do. But also, at the same time, in October that year, Motown was releasing Stevie Wonder's Songs of the Key of Life. So I was already on the plug on Elton John's Blue Moves, and I got approached by the general manager inside EMI Motown, who had actually interviewed me for the job in the first place and given me the job. 
say, look, the girl that we've had to hire to take your place, you know, we're not particularly happy with. I don't think she knows anything about Motown, is particularly interested in Motown. So we've got this massive release coming out on the Stevie Wonder. Would you come to the launch at Abbey Road and help us looking after all the Radio 1 producers who you know? When Stevie Wonder Songs in the Key of Life was launched, I basically was the plugger on that, as well as Elton John's Blue Moves. And obviously, as an introduction, as, as a record plugger, to have both Elton John and Stevie Wonder at the same time is quite a good place to be. But also, as it happened on the day that we did the launch of Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life at Abbey Road, the girl who had got the job turned out to be a massive Cliff Richard fan. And Cliff was in Abbey Road Studios as well, downstairs working. So she spent almost all the time that we were at Abbey Road launching Stevie Wonder's record downstairs hoping to get a glimpse of Cliff. And so what happened was at the launch party for Elton's record, I was there at a, a small club called Monkbury's in, in German Street. And I was going around, and I, was, and I was talking to this lady for a while, and the vice president of Motown International, who had interviewed me, he came across and he said, oh, I said, I see you've met my wife, Dolly. And I said, well, I, I didn't know it's your wife, but yes, we've been, we've been talking. And she said to Ken, oh, what a charming young man. I didn't think any more of it. Next day, I get a phone call from Kenny saying, look, I think we've made a mistake. Will you come and work for, for Motown? So I did. I then became head of promotion for Motown, gave up all the other labels, including Rocket, and worked for Motown. And then it was a full year later uh, you know, the Motown artists had been in and I'd sort of got my feet under the table. I remember Smokey Robinson was the first major artist that came in that I had to look after Smokey and his family for four days. And then about a year later, I was working, you know, I was just doing my Motown job. And I was actually, funnily enough, I was in Manchester with Smokey Robinson on tour. And I got a phone call in early afternoon, probably about three o'clock in the afternoon from Motown in London. And you have to remember, this wasn't an easy thing. Because nowadays, yeah, I got a phone call. So you, 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 know, you just took it on your mobile. No. <laughs> we weren't a... How did they get in touch with you? What number did they ring? Well, they, they phoned the theatre and phoned the box office and asked if they could try, if I was there and could they... So somebody came around asking, you know, does anybody know who Keith Harris is? And, and, and eventually I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, oh, well, there's a phone call for you. So I went to the box office and it was the then it was a different general manager of Motown. Uh, the guy that originally hired me, Julian Moore, had left, and a new guy called Alan Pitcher had come in. <clears throat> and it was Alan uh, saying, oh, we need you to come back to London tonight. And I'm going, well, I can't come tonight. You know, Smokey's got a gig. I'm here, you know, for his show. I said, no, no, you've, you, you're going to have to come back down. I'm thinking, well, that's really strange. I'm <laughs> Partly thinking, well, is this mean I'm going to get fired again? <laughs> but anyway, so I said, I was saying, well, so what's so important? And they said, well, Stevie Wonder's coming into London tonight and he wants to go out and we don't know where to take him. Because my job as head of promotions, I also was doing club promotions. So I knew the London clubs, I knew the DJs, you know. So I came down to meet Stevie to take him out that night. You know, we went to a small club 
in Mayfair called Gulliver's in Down Street. So that's kind of my introduction to Stevie. I met him that night. I had made arrangements at the club by telephone. I knew the DJ and I knew the manager. So I'd phoned them up and said, look, you know, I've got Stevie Wonder coming down tonight. And I said he was going to be there about 10. And I got there at 10. And they were kind of, are you sure? <laughs> I said, well, I think so. I mean, you know, I was just passing on what had been told to me. I obviously hadn't spoken to Stevie or his people. And, you know, we get to the club and they're at 10 and 10.30, no sign of him. 11 o'clock, no sign of him. So, of course, they start and say, are you sure? And I'm going, well, I don't know. <laughs> Look, that's what I'm told. You know? Anyway, I think he eventually turned about half 11. And it was actually quite funny because obviously they cleared an area in the club and we all went and sat down. And, and I said, <laughs> what I remember was that obviously all the Motown hierarchy you know, Ken East and James Fisher and the people who were working for Motown International all turned up. And of course, it was, for its day, a fairly kind of deep soul club. You know, it was all cutting edge music coming in from America and stuff. Songs that are music that none of them would have known at all. So there's a, this really strange spectacle of all these guys sitting around the table, tapping their hands out of tune. This music, this music which they almost certainly hated. Yeah, and I'm just thinking, I don't know what you're doing that for. He can't see you. So the next day I went to the hotel and that's where we started to chat properly. And then I ended up sort of driving him around London looking for a, a part for one of his, uh, he had a tape recorder he was trying to get batteries for. I remember driving up to Tottenham Court Road to try and get batteries and we never found them. It was just him and me in, in my little Ford Escort. We became, basically we became friends. He said to me, why don't you come and work with me in America? And I said, well, well, I didn't actually say anything, but I thought to myself, you know, I can't do that. You know, I was born in Newcastle. I've lived in England. I lived in, in Wigan and Northwest of England pretty much all my life. I have two brothers and a sister who were all here. My parents were in West Africa. I'd never been to America. You know, the idea of suddenly just moving to L.A. on a kind of a casual job offer from a, you know, a rock star <laughs> just wasn't really on the cards. So I just filed it in my mind. Yeah, it's nice, nice of you to ask, but, you know, I don't, I don't think I'll be doing that. And that went on for about another year. And interestingly enough, it was another example of prejudice which kind of eventually made me move a year later i got called in by the general manager of, of emi license label division again no it was the managing director of emi license label division called me and he said alan fitter who's the guy who's the general manager of motown uh has handed in his notice today so he, he obviously he's leaving his general manager of motown and it might seem to a lot of people that you'd be an obvious choice for the job. Because I'd done quite well. He said, but I'm just calling you in to say, I'm not going to give it to you, so don't bother to apply. So, oh, thanks a lot. <laughs> and then on the way out, he said, uh, I'm going to find somebody with more experience. So I thought, well, you know, I can't argue that too much. I've only been here for nearly two years. I'm not the most experienced person in the world. So, you know, I just had to, you know, bite my bite my tongue again <laughs> yeah but then the month went and the guy had handed his note he left and then the same 
managing director calls me in and says, look, you know, Alan Fitt has left. We haven't managed to find a replacement for him yet. So will you become general manager and we'll, we'll carry on looking for a replacement? So I took over as general manager of the label and did that job for another three months. And then I get called into his office again. And he says, um, ah, we're, we're bringing in uh, David Hughes to be, the, to be the general manager of Motown. But, you know, he hasn't really got a lot of experience in some areas. So will you look over his shoulder and kind of help him out you know, while, <laughs> while he settles in? <laughs> At which point I, I called Stevie and said, look, is that job still going? And he said, yeah, come on. So that's when I moved to LA to work directly with Stevie. Did those things make you angry, being, being treated like that? Well, you have to remember, Dave, that I was born in Britain. I've always been black. <laughs> so you learn to cope. That was part of, of everyday life for black people in Britain at that time. You either become bitter and twisted or you learn to deal with it. So I learned to deal with it. And, you know, the, the expression is that there is an our house. Don't be bitter, be better. What you want to try and do is just be better than your white counterparts so that you can make progress. So I just, I just worked really hard and, and tried to do you know, the very best I could and try to be the best I could. And um, I was fortunate. There's no question I've had a lo lot of lucky breaks. But that fed into you know, what happened next. So I went to work with Stevie and that, that was great for me. Fantastic. Well, you, you've, you've moved on into all sorts of areas. I mean, one mm -hmm. of the areas that you, I know, is close to your heart, and I know you've worked in for a long period of time, is education. Yeah. Um, could, could, could we maybe move across to that? What, yeah. You, you know, who, what do you teach what? in education? In, in, it's, it's music business, isn't it? And, and who music are you business, yeah. is, it, is, it, is it artists or is it people wanting to be execs? Well, again, and it's just, this is going to sound terrible because it, I didn't necessarily want to go down this road, but it's just the truth, right? Part of the reason I got, in, got into education, again, was to do with prejudices, right? And because when I came back to the UK from America, I was conscious, I mean, I was conscious before. I'd had all, all kinds of experiences. I remember going to Radio 1 at one point with... Uh, a Commodore's record. It was actually a, a, a song called Just To Be Close To You by the Commodores. And um, one of the Radio 1 producers said to me, oh, we're already playing Earth, Wind & Fire. That's enough of this kind of music. So they refused to play it. And then Jonathan King covered the record with a group called 100 Tons and a Feather, right? And they put it straight on the playlist. As some, I think it was... Um, Maybe Noel Edmonds or David Hamilton's record of the week. And I hit the roof. That, that was a time when I went mad. And I actually wrote to um, the controller of Radio One, complaining against about the prejudice against you know, black music forms yeah. and saying you know, that it was against the BBC Charter, because the BBC Charter is you know, supposed to be no fear or favor and, and so on and so forth. And I got a letter back from him. I still got a copy of the letter somewhere um, where he said, yeah, I'm really surprised that you, that you are taking this line because, you know, as far as I'm, they were concerned, I was 
but is your house black? You know, <laughs> you know. I'm surprised at you saying something like this. I mean, especially you know, after all the, the, the expression you used, I think you said there's a fair smattering of black faces on top of the pops every week. <laughs> uh, you know. Anyway, that's you know, by and by. But what happened was that's one of the first times I became really aware of how difficult it was for black artists as opposed to you know normal white pop artists and then as the 80s went on I became aware that it was it was really difficult on the other side of the industry for black execs there weren't any basically you know I knew all the black people in the music industry at that time personally <laughs> which will give you some idea just how crazy it was and in 1990 or 91, we made a, a program. I say we, it was the, there's an organization called the Black Music Association in Britain. It was run by Root Jackson and Byron Lifehook, right? And they made a film. It was called Soul Searching. It's still available, I'm sure, on, on YouTube somewhere, like everything is, right? And this film was, it was investigating why there were so few black stars in Britain, right? And one of the things that kept coming up in the course of the film was, well, you know, if we could find black people who were qualified to uh, come into business, of course we'd hire them. You know, from various record execs who said this and at Radio One, people were saying that. And of course it was ridiculous because there was no such thing as a qualification. Mm. to join the music you know when they're talking about people being qualified what do you mean by qualified but then uh, a man called norton york called me up uh, and he said look we are about to instigate the first music degree course for, for pop music you know in the uk a ba honors of commercial music at the university of westminster so would you sit on our professional advisory panel? And the idea then was for these vocational degrees, they had a professional advisory panel, which was a group of people who said, you know, what they felt should be included in a degree with that name. So as a panel, they're saying, well, what do you think? If somebody's going to have a BA on in commercial music, what do you think they should have? You know, what do you think they should uh, come out with? And so we kind of guided the shape of the degree course. I mean, the only significant in input I remember that I made to that was that when they were talking about the entrance qualifications, they said that everybody should have, you know, at least grade six in music. And I said, absolutely wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, I said, do you think that uh, John Lennon or Paul McCartney have got a grade six in music? Yeah. They didn't, but anyway, they lasted more than three piano lessons, did they, either of them? <laughs> no, but, but to be fair, I was kind of pushing an open door there because the people that instigated the course didn't necessarily want that either. But the point is, in order to get into the university system, you know, they had to have you know, qualifications and things that, that would make sense to the university hierarchy. Yeah. But anyway, they managed to get the degree through and they launched it and they ran it for about a year. And then I went to the celebration at the end of the first year and was talking to the people that started the, the course, uh, Norton and a man called Simon Pitt. And they were saying, I was saying, well, you know, how's it going? 
so it was going quite well, except the music business module, you know, we're having a bit of trouble with because they've used the, the lecturers from the Harrow Business School, which is part of the University of Westminster, to teach the music business. And they clearly know about business, but really didn't understand the music business at all, because it's a very separate animal. So they said, so what we're, what we're trying to do, we're looking for somebody with a bit of music business experience to come in and make it feel a bit more real. You know, do you know anybody that could do that? And I thought, hmm, <laughs> people have been talking about getting people qualified. <laughs> um, I said, well, look, I have no teaching experience, but I've worked in the music business for a bit. If you're prepared to take a chance on me, and you're prepared to accept the fact that I'm a manager first and a lecturer second. Yeah, I'll, I'll, obviously, I'll commit and try to make all the lectures and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there will be times when I just can't because I've got to be doing something for one of my acts. Uh, and they said, yeah, let's give it a try. And in my mind, I think, well, finally, there's going to be qualifications. And two things, first of all, there was a significant number of ethnic minority students on that course. But, and this was even more important to me, was that I thought, well, if I'm teaching people the music business and they are going to go on to have careers in the music business and they have been taught by a black person, it will change their perceptions <laughs> of what black people are capable of. So I basically started teaching there, and I actually taught there for 16 years. They gave me an honorary doctorate in the end, uh, in 2007, I think. Um, you know, so that's one of the reasons why I got involved in music business education. But it's very much aimed at the exec side of the, of, of the case. Yes. Yeah, yeah. well, the, the course in itself, the BA Honours, was divided into three equal sections at the start. There was the sociology of music, which is kind of how it managed to get its degree qualification in the first place, because the, the academics understood that. It's sociology, lots of books written, you know, lots of stuff that you, theses and so on and so forth. So that was the kind of the meat of the, of the course. And then separate and apart, well, alongside that, they also had a music production module which was kind of studio technique and uh, you know, a little bit of low level engineering and you know, uh, maybe a little bit of record production. So that was second. And then the third strand, which is the strand I ended, ended up in charge of was the music business, right? So the, all those three component parts went on, to, went on to make the BA honors in commercial music. So um, I was teaching music business from scratch and it was really up to me you know what I thought should be included in that I was given a lot of freedom you know again for which I'm very grateful and so I, I basically started teaching that but what happened was after I'd done a year then the university was kind of saying well this that degree course was getting a high number of applicants right because obviously it was the first BA honors in commercial music and lots of people were interested in it. And the government had introduced this system where the money follows the students. 
So if you had more students, you got more money, right? So the idea of, of expanding this beer on in commercial music was, was attractive to the university. So they decided to expand it from 60 students a year to 80. But the extra 20 students were going to be, no, so expanding from 40 to 60 originally, because it started 40 a year and, and went to 60. And the extra 20 students were going to be all put into the music business module because that had proved to be quite successful and it was quite popular. So we went to 80 and then the next year, we went to 60, the next year we went to 80 and then they went to 100. And in the end I left because it, it got to the point where in my first, my first year class had 120 students one year. And it was just ridiculous. We didn't have a lecture theater big enough. And the student experience I didn't think was, was good. Yeah, I think they've rolled back from that now. But they just kept adding more and more and more and more students. And my value to them in the first place had been the fact that I could almost kind of chaperone people through some of their projects and their ideas. And, you know, and I couldn't do that anymore when they had that many students. I go to quite a lot of the, of the kind of conferences, you know, the conferences with give people advice. And there's always a kind of top table of music business dignitaries kind of giving advice, you know, well, if you do this with your social media and you tweak that, and you know, then you'll do really, really well. The piece of advice that almost invariably gets forgotten to me is the most important, which is you need to be really, really good at what you do, right? And that's, if you're an artist, it's the artistry, you know? If you're a singer, make sure you are a really, really good singer. And even if you're good and distinctive, go and get lessons to protect your voice. Always work at your craft. That's, that's the, to me, is paramount. You know, you can, obviously, lots of people can be successful without necessarily being great singers or great performers. But fundamentally, if you're going to stick around for a while, you need to be able to do your basic job really, really well. You know, that's paramount. A lot of the other stuff, it's worth knowing, you know, in, in other words, it's worth knowing a little bit about how your business works and so on and so forth, but focus on what you do, right? Focus on being an artist. And the other thing I would say is focus on being unique because I've had people over the years, I call and say, oh, you've got to hear this guy. He sounds just like Stevie Wonder. I'm thinking, why do I need to hear him? I work with Stevie Wonder. I don't, I'm not interested in somebody that sounds just like Stevie Wonder. I'm interested in Stevie Wonder. I don't mind if somebody's influenced by, but don't sound like anybody else. You'll sound like you. You'll find your voice. And I'm, I'm saying that figuratively. You, know, you may be a guitar player. You know, find your voice as a guitar player. So people hear it and say, oh, that's, so, that's Joe Satriani or that's Jimi Hendrix or whatever. Try not to copy people. It's fine to be influenced by, but don't copy. You know, you need to be unique. So I think those are the two key pieces of advice I'd give to any young artist. There's a lot of technical stuff which can be taught. But at the end of the day, you have to remember you're teaching artistry. And music is an art. It's not a science. So anybody who tells you this is the way you have to do it, that's not going to be right. It's good to get the technical ability to be able to do other things with it, but there's not one way. You know, the whole point about it is creativity, finding different ways. 
What, what are the big dangers and sort of hidden obstacles that artists need to be aware of? Well, this is going to be counterintuitive. <laughs> but again, you know, a lot of the time you have these conferences and people are saying, oh, you know, be careful about getting ripped off by this person. and Be careful about, you know, don't sign that because there lies danger and all that kind of stuff. Well, arm yourself with a bit of knowledge. But at some point, you actually have to trust people. You have to find somebody you feel that you can trust and trust them. Because otherwise, what happens is you end up locking away all your music or all your creativity or all your art for fear of getting ripped off. So you have to actually be open. The whole point about being an artist is you are a communicator. You have to communicate to your audience. Out there, there is somebody who wants to hear what you have to say. Now, obviously, ideally, you are going to make a fortune from it. But that shouldn't be your prime reason for coming into the business. Your prime reason should be com for coming in should be that you have something to say. You have something you want to communicate. Don't lose sight of that. That is the most important thing is you're, you're a communicator. So you need to show it off and don't get paranoid. At some point, you probably will get ripped off you know, because that's the nature of life. It's not just music. Everything doesn't always go smoothly, but be resilient enough to come back from that and press on with your ox. That's your primary driver. Who are the key people to help artists develop their career? And this is another thing, right? which is on, the, on those conferences, quite often, like I say, you have a top table of music industry dignitaries. And when they've spe finished speaking, everybody then heads up to the top table to try and talk to those established figures in the industry i would always say to people look that's fine but probably the most important people to you are going to be your peers the other people in this room the other people that are out there also soak up the knowledge in, and starting out in their careers they are at the same stage that you are at and these are the people that you are going to need to know because the they're going to be alongside you through your career doing different things so in the room you might be a band really looking for some who's really talented in making videos and there's probably somebody in the room that exactly fits the bill and they are much more likely to give you time than that really established video maker up on the top table and and the same with, with publishers or or writers or producers the chances are that there's somebody in the room at that particular time or one of your peers who's got the talent. Those are the people you should really be seeking out. You know, not the old hands and the old legs. Because apart from the else, the world has moved on. If I taught people to come into the music business that I was in, you know, 45 years ago, what a joke would that be? You know, I mean, the CD hadn't even been invented. You know, so really... It's a contemporary business. The business is, has never been, not since the 60s and 70s, as the business has been as exciting as it is now. And the reason why I say that is because us older people have actually lost control. And we've lost control because the industry has transformed. The way that music is created and sold has changed so much that actually there's a whole load of new ways of, moving, of, of doing it. Which is why you'll see a Stormzy come from nowhere, you know, and you see new bands coming up really under their own steam. Because for a long time, that was controlled. You know, the, people, the, the major companies and the big execs, they, had, they were in control because they totally understood it. Now, 
they stroke we because i include myself in that don't understand it so it's an exciting new time work with your peers work with people of your age group who kind of understand what's happening now and that's your vehicle to success fantastic you you've worked with so many so many fabulous artists i mean stevie wonder one of my all-time favorites for heaven's sakes but have you noticed any habits or, or behaviors or attitudes that that they have that they show when they go around the world dealing with people that that up and coming people could learn from and benefit from see stevie's unique to me i know obviously because i've worked with him for so long and we're still friends after 40 something years you know i'm, I'm going to say that but the, i think the thing about most of the artists and, and you see that the ones that are really successful and have been around for a long time they actually work really hard and and they work really hard in all kinds of areas it's not just their musicianship it's the way they do interviews the way they treat their fans they recognize the most successful ones they recognize that they are there in their position under license <laughs> and they are under license from their public and if they cease to work hard at their relationship with their fan base it can disappear really quickly so they all they all recognize that yes they have a talent and that their talent has helped to get them where they are but they are licensed by the general public to be where they are yeah that's very good advice that's brilliant thank you keith oh no problem at all okay thanks dave take care see you bye